0: Hey, uh, well, good to be with you. My name is Gareth, uh, part of the team here, and grateful to be able to share God's Word with you. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a little bit of a series called uh, A Framework for Life, uh, where we've been kind of exploring kind of this idea of what does it mean to live life for Jesus in our current context, in our current world, you know? And, uh, and we've discovered that, that what are the, the, fra- or the definition that we're really going after is that we would be a creative community. And a creative community, if you remember, and and if you've been here all four weeks, I know you have memorized it by now. No? Okay. So just me. We'll put it on the screen. But this is what a creative community is. A creative community is a, or minority, is a community of believers who live out the story of God the way Jesus showed us. Right? For God's glory and for the good of the culture that God has called us to participate in. And so what we've been discovering is that, man, here we are in, in 21st century, you know, 2021. Can you believe it? 2021. And it's almost over. Anybody else excited about Christmas and about 2021 being over? <laughs> yeah. But here we are at the end of the, at the you know, 2021. And, and, man, life looks a little bit different than maybe we would have anticipated. Or maybe we would look at when we read the Bible and kind of think, man, how does all this work out? What's the plan? How do we live out the story of God. And, and so what we've done is over the last two weeks, we've broken down and looked at kind of four movements or four chapters of God's story, if you will. And, and we've been looking at chapter one a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at, that we looked at chapter one, which is creation. Uh, because we, we recognize that we live in the middle of the story And uh, any of you ever been to the movies? I know somebody came up to me afterwards, uh, or after first service, and said, I went and saw 007. We talked about 007. Anyone else seen that? Where, you know, it starts somewhere, and you're like, what's going on? And then it goes somewhere, and you're like, and then it kind of, oh, now it all makes sense, right? Life can sometimes feel like that. Like, it, it doesn't make sense right now. Like, how, is this, how are things the way they are right now? And, uh, and we decided and looked at, for us to understand how life is supposed to happen right now, we need to go back to the start of the story. And so we went and looked at chapter 1, which was creation. And in creation, we were exploring what is God's ideal? What is the plan that God has for us, for us as individuals, for us as a community, and for all of creation? And by going back to chapter one, we were able to see the genesis of the story or the origin of the story and understand what God's original intent was. And if you remember, we talked about in chapter one God created us in his image. And he created us in his image for his glory. But he also created us to partner with him for the good of creation. And, and so if there were words that I would use to describe chapter 1, it would be words like delight and dependence. Or de- dependence. Everything was as it was meant to be. Remember we used this uh, picture last week of a symphony. That every part knew what its part was, played well with others. Every part played when it was supposed to play. And it produced something that was beautiful something that glorified God, and something that was good for everybody else around them. And so we recognize that in chapter one of the story, what God designed us for was God designed us to depend upon him. In fact, we realize that God is good, that God has an in God, and in our relationship with God, we have everything that we could ever want or need to thrive in life. But... What we discovered last week in chapter 2 of the story is that there was this enemy of God who comes into creation and he begins to whisper in the ear of Adam and Eve. And he said this, did God really say... And what we found in chapter two, everything was beautiful, everything was perfect, everything was harmonious, everything was as it was meant to be. All of creation, you and I, were all dependent upon God, and everything we needed to thrive in life was found in our relationship with Him. But in chapter two, the enemy comes in and begins to undermine the character and the goodness of God. Did God really say? Is God really that good? I think God might be withholding something from you. And what we discovered last week was that in chapter 2, that's called The Fall, what we discovered was that Adam and Eve, and in Adam and Eve, all of humanity chose to believe the lie of the enemy rather than believe the truth of God. They chose to say, God, you're not good, you're not enough, and I've got to provide for myself. And we unpacked that last week. And and what we discovered was that, that what was a symphony ends up becoming a middle school band. Now, I did hear from a few middle school principals and teachers last week, so I want to make a public apology <laughs> to all of my middle schoolers, our middle school teachers, or, or, uh, or, uh, our principals. But but uh, you get the point, right? That, that, boy, it was a symphony, and now every instrument's playing its own part whenever it feels like it wants to play it. And it's just chaos. And this is the world that we live in. This is our current reality. We're broken. Our our world is broken. Creation is broken because of a thing called sin. Now, what's so interesting is that sin, and we talked about this a little bit, and I'm going to move on from sin today, so you're okay. We're not going to do sin part two this week, right? But but I do want to say this. Sin has a direct impact, and it has an indirect impact. And so, for example, if I was to steal something from you, The direct impact is that I have taken something that belongs to you. I owe you something, don't I? And there's this direct impact of sin, but there's also an indirect impact of sin. And the indirect impact of sin is that, yes, I stole something from you, but now there's mistrust. Now you maybe look at me with suspicion. Now you maybe look at me and say, don't know if I can trust that guy. He stole something from me. And so this is the very nature of sin, that sin is both direct and indirect. Now think about that, not just in the context of your life, not just in the context of your family, not just in the context of our church, not just in the context of Happy Valley and Sandy and Vancouver and the communities that we live in. Think about that in the context of six plus billion people on the planet. And you begin to get an idea of how insidious and heinous sin is. It breaks everything that God created. In fact, I would say this way, sin is a complex and insidious root that entangles itself into our nature and God's creation, making us something we're not meant to be. Sin makes you into something that you're not meant to be it entangles itself around us. But it's not just our hearts and our lives. It entangles itself into every relationship, into every institution, into every government, into every financial system, into every school system. Sin infects absolutely everything in God's creation. And so what we recognize is because sin is so insidious and because sin has entangled its, its, its a, a root system around every human being's heart and into all of creation, what we need to understand is that sin is in direct opposition to God. Sin has corrupted all of God's creation, which makes it personal for God. In fact, it actually says this in Psalm 51, and remember, Psalm 51 is where David, King David in the Old Testament, he sinned by sleeping with Bathsheba and and uh, and then having uh, Nathan mur- or uh, having someone murdered, and then and I what happens is that he he's kind of reflecting. Nathan, the prophet, Nathan comes to him and says, "Hey, um, you've sinned." And he's reflecting, and he says, look, search me, O God. Look look in my heart, Lord. I want to make sure to root out every piece of sin. And then he makes this statement in Psalm 51 and verse 4. He says, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned. And sin is incredibly personal to God. It's an offense from us to God. And so while we offend one another and we sin against one another, while we sin against ourselves, while sin indirectly and directly affects all of creation, sin primarily has to do with how we've offended God, how we've come against God. But here's what we learned last week, and this is what I love about God, that while God doesn't wink at sin, God has a plan to deal with sin. And if you remember last week, we, we, we talked about this. Immediately, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and God didn't come down and beat them up. He didn't come down and destroy them, with, which is what they deserved, right? Because they've offended God. They've ransacked God's creation, right? But what God did was he comes down and he pursues them. He covers their sin, and then he makes them a promise that he will fulfill someday. And we're going to talk about that today because we're turning the page now into chapter three of God's story, and this chapter is called redemption and really redemption is an invitation back to the garden invitation it's an invitation god through what the work of jesus christ and we're going to unpack this today is an invitation back to the garden It's back to dependence, it's back to relationship, it's back to God redeeming and recreating or restoring his original plan. And so what we're going to discover today in chapter 3 is that God is in his redemptive work inviting you and I back to the garden and back into relationship with him. But in order to do that, God must deal with sin. Now, why must God deal with sin? Couldn't God just kind of, I mean, he's God after all, right? Couldn't God just kind of wink at sin? Couldn't God just kind of sweep it onto the rug? Couldn't God just kind of take care of sin some way? Why did God have to deal with sin? Why did God have to confront sin? Well, there's this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, and it says this, There is none holy like the Lord for there is none beside you there is no rock like our god and one of the things that you discover when you begin to read god's word one of the things that god tells us in his word about himself remember we've all agreed in week 1 we said that the bible isn't about us the bible is about god it's god telling us who he is and 700 times that's 700 zero, zero, 700 times in the bible we're told about the holiness of God. God is holy. In fact, the rabbis would oftentimes, when they were referring to Yahweh or they were referring to God, they wouldn't just say that God is holy. They would say that God is holy, holy, holy. Or another way, God is holy, holier, and holiest. And so what is this idea of God's holiness. Because oftentimes when we hear of God's holiness or we hear that word holy, what we oftentimes think of is moral purity. And and that is true to a certain degree. That is a part of what holiness is. It is moral purity, right? That, That where there is sin or there's a violation or there's evil, well, holiness would be the complete opposite of that. And so God is holy. But the idea of holiness in the Bible and what God is wanting us to understand about who he is, is that he is distinct and set apart. Now, one of the things that we oftentimes do is that we try to reduce God to be more like us, to look and behave and act a little bit more like us. It's it's kind of why some people might even ask the question, well, why doesn't God just get rid of sin? Why doesn't he just deal with it another way. Like, why, why, does, why does it have to be an issue? Well, it has to be an issue because God is holy. God is distinct. God is set apart. And his holiness cannot stand the presence of evil because sin and evil is opposed to everything that God stands for. God must deal with sin. Now, We live in a world that is obsessed, our culture is obsessed with justice. You know, it doesn't take much. You know, you flip on the TV or, do you flip on the TV anymore? That's like an old thing, isn't it? You know, you have to get up out of your lazy boy and walk across the room and bend down and flip a switch to get the big, that's an old TV, right? Some of you are looking at me a little bit funky. You push the button on the TV remote, right? And, and, and it's true, isn't it? Like you tune into the TV or you, you know, turn on Netflix or Hulu or whatever the case might be. And, and the reality is that it doesn't take you very long um, to discover that there's all kinds of shows that deal with justice. Right? You've got your FBIs. Anybody watch the FBI, you know? You've got FBI, FBI Most Wanted, FBI International, right? You've got Law & Order, Law & Order SU, SUV or SVU or whatever that one is. I don't watch it, you know? Then you've got CSI, right? There are so many different CSIs, right? There's CSI Miami and CSI Las Vegas and CSI Happy Valley. We haven't quite reached it there yet. But you get the point is that there's all of these dramas, all of these shows on TV that are addressing the issue of justice. There's a crime that's been committed. So we need to discover who committed the crime, and then that person has to pay for the crime. We are obsessed with justice. In fact, not only are we obsessed with justice when it comes to drama, and it comes to kind of those kinds of fictional TV shows. We're obsessed with, dra- uh, with justice when it comes to our reality TV shows. How many of you would be brave enough to admit that you watch 2020, our 60 Minutes, our Dateline? And all of these shows are all obsessed with justice. Why? Because as human beings, we are obsessed with justice. We want the truth to come out, or at least our version of it. We want the person who committed the crime to pay the time, right? Like, we are obsessed with making sure that a wrong is put right. It's part of our culture, it's part of our DNA. We love fairness. If you're a parent pouring cereal for two of your kids, you know that they're obsessed with fairness. He got more than me, she got the good first, you know, right? We want everything to be fair. We want everything to be just. We want everything, we want the innocent to be set free, but we want the guilty to pay for the crime, right? There's just, justice is a part of who we are as human beings. Where did that justice come from? Because we're created in God's image, aren't we? And what, what we need to recognize is that justice is a part of God's character, but not just any kind of justice. It's not just us reducing him down to kind of our standard and our level. No, no, no. Because God is holy, there must be justice for sin. There must be justice for the guilt and the rebellion of the sin that we and all humanity have created. And so the, the fact of the matter is that if God didn't deal with sin, he would actually be unjust. And the last thing that we want as human beings is an unjust God. We want a God that is holy. We want a God that judges righteously. We want a God who is concerned about justice. But the question then, it begs the question, if God must deal with sin, why doesn't God just rid the world of sin? I mean, we hear this question all the time, don't we? Like, well, if God is so good, why is there so much evil? If God is so good, why doesn't he just wipe out the evil? And the reality is there's two reasons. There's probably a ton of reasons, but there's two that I want to highlight this morning why God doesn't just get rid of sin. And the first thing is this, because he loves you. What do you mean, Gareth? He loves me? Like, if he loved me, wouldn't he just get rid of sin? Well, let's just unpack the thought. For God to get rid of sin and evil, right, would mean that he would have to destroy you and I. You see the same evil and the same sin that we look at in the world around us. Or we look at maybe in relationships or offenses that come. These kinds of things. And we say, God, why don't you just get rid of that sin? Just get it out of here. In order for God to get it out of here, he'd have to get us out of here. And the bottom line is that God loves you too much. And this is the secular story. This is the story that the enemy tries to get us to believe all the time. God isn't good. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God is so good, God loves you so much, that He has to find a way to deal with sin that doesn't mean destroying you. Why? Because He loves you. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, first couple of verses. It says in verse 1 As for you, and I want you to see something here, because last week we talked about how the enemy starts by questioning God's character. He actually assassinates God's goodness and his character. Then he begins to get them to doubt and fear and question. And they end up, if you remember, Adam ends up just in obstinate rebellion. He doesn't care. He's just going to take the fruit and they're going to eat anyway. And there's this story that get, gets woven. There's this lie that we get entangled in. And look what, look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses. And there's a few words that Paul uses in this passage. But the first thing he says is, you were dead. Like, not breathing. Like, separated from God kind of dead. You were dead in your trespasses. And the Greek word for trespasses right there literally means to deviate from the path. So Paul starts out by saying, hey, you're just deviating from the path. But he goes on and he says, you weren't just dead in your trespasses, you're dead in your sins. And the the Greek word there is literally to miss the mark. So now we've gone from deviating a little bit to now I'm actually missing the mark. If there's a target, a goal, if there's somewhere that God wants me to get, I am missing it completely because of sin. And he goes on, in which you used to live when you followed the ways in this world. Um, and then, the, and the sorry. Let me back up. Chapter two, in or verse two, in which you lived when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, Satan, the enemy, the devil, the serpent, is now the prince of the power of the air. He's a ruler. We've abdicated authority, and what has happened now is Paul is saying, hey, you deviated transgression, missed the mark, sinned, now you're just living in disobedience. And the word there literally means obstinate rebellion. In other words, I don't even care what God thinks anymore. And so we start out by deviating, we miss the mark, now we don't even care. And he goes on and he says this, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. And what, what Paul is saying here is you deviated, you missed the mark, you're an obstinate rebellion. Now you're just chasing your own desires. It's about you, not about God anymore. And he goes on and he says this. You're, you're chasing your own desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Why? Because God is holy. Because God is holy and because God is just and we want a God who is holy. We want a God who is just. We don't want a God who treats one person one way and another person another way. Sin must be dealt with. But God, and I love this, this is what he says next. He says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved so why doesn't god get rid of sin because if he had to get rid if he got rid of sin he would have to get rid of us and he loves you too much to get rid of you he loves you too much to destroy and give you and i what we actually deserve for our transgressions on our sins and our disobedience and the cravings of the flesh that we just kind of chase after on our own god loves you too much to wipe you off the face of the planet. He had to find another way to deal with sin. But the second reason why God doesn't just get rid of sin, besides the fact that he loves you, is his glory. Remember we started the story by saying that we are created in the image of God. Why were we created in the name of God? To reflect his glory. Why were we given dominion to oversee and to care for all of God's creation? So that it might be fruitful and multiply and the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. Peter describes it this way, that you and I as followers of Jesus are actually on this planet to declare the excellencies of God back to him and to all of creation. And so what God is most concerned about, and this might be hard for some of us to actually believe, God is not most concerned about you and me. God is most concerned. What is uppermost in his mind is his glory. says this in Isaiah 43. He says in verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were you created? For his glory. Isaiah 48, 9 uh, through 11, he says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. You see what God's doing here? God, we, so much of the secular story is, well, God is not good. God's got a two by four. God is uh, after you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. And God's saying all the while, I'm restraining my anger. I'm holding back. Why? Because I love you, number one. But watch what it says in verse, uh, the, the next verse, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats it, I do it. My glory I will not give to another. And so in the, chapter 2, the enemy and mankind with him is trying to steal God's glory. And God says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. What's uppermost in God's mind? His glory. Look what it says in Psalm uh, 106, verse eight, verse 8. Yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. There's no question That you and I are part of a bigger story. But what God would do in chapter 3 through redemption wasn't just about you and I. It was about his glory. Look what it says in Romans chapter 3. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, speaking of Jesus, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So even the cross is about the righteousness and the glory of God. And so over and over and over again, we're finding that God doesn't destroy us. God doesn't just get rid of sin because if he did, he'd have to destroy us. And he doesn't want to destroy us. Why? Because he loves us, number one. Number two, because of his glory. To wipe out those that he had created in his image would destroy, would just wipe out glory. And God says, no, 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 there's got to be a different plan. There's got to be a different way. There's got to be another way. Well, how many of you know God's not stumped? God's not trying to figure out how to overcome this challenge, overcome this problem. So how is it that God then would deal with sin by not destroying us? But what other way could he do this? And we discovered the seeds of it last week in in, that chapter, in the chapter, the end of chapter 2, where remember that they... Skin of an animal covered their nakedness, which meant that there had to be the shedding of blood. And what God establishes um, at the very outset of, right after God, Adam and Eve turned their back on God, they sin, God establishes a pattern that would deal with sin. There had to be the shedding of blood. That's God's justice. It actually says it this way in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God loves you so much, and God is concerned about his glory. He must deal with sin, but the way he has to deal with it is through the shedding of blood. Now, this might Sound a little gross, but throughout the Old Testament, and if you read the Old Testament, you're like, man, it just feels like a bloodbath going on there. There's all these animal sacrifices, you know? We showed that video a couple of weeks ago, you know, where the, the Bible, pro- it was a cartoon, so it made it more palatable, you know, where they chopped off the ram's, the uh, sheep's head, right? You guys don't remember that, that's okay. But, But what what we find throughout the Old Testament is that there's this idea of animal sacrifice. And to the modern mind and to us, that sounds kind of gross. What's the deal with all of these animal sacrifices? To the Israelites, though, there was something powerful that was going on. And and what was taking place, there were lots of things, but there were two main things that were taking place through these animal sacrifices, through the shedding of blood. And the first thing that was taking place was that there was an atonement, in other words, there was a covering of death or a covering of sin through the shedding of blood. And so there was a substitution that took place. God set it up in the Old Testament in such a way that when that animal's blood was shed, that that blood covered the sin of the, the, the human being that was bringing that animal to be sacrificed in the temple. And so there's a substitution that takes place. There was the shedding of blood. There was a sacrifice of something or someone in place of another so that there could be forgiveness. But the second thing that was taking place in the Old Testament wasn't just me being, having my personal sin covered by the substitutionary death of an animal. What was also taking place was that there was cleansing that was taking place. Remember I said God is holy? And God's holiness cannot coexist with sin. So something had to cover the sin. Something had to take place to cleanse the space where God would abide with his people because that's what God has always wanted, to abide with his children. And so what would happen in the Old Testament is that the high priest would literally take the blood of that animal and they'd sprinkle it around the temple or around the tabernacle. And what was taking place in that moment was that there was a cleansing that was taking place there was almost like a space where where god could come and abide with his family and i want you to see the goodness of god i want as gross as that old testament structure seems i want you to understand and recognize that god was once again stepping into that space and pursuing his children he was entering into relationship and the only way that he could do that because his holiness couldn't coexist with their sin was through the shedding of blood the problem of the Old Testament was that what was supposed to, and it was never going to be a system that was ever going to work, because there couldn't be enough sacrifice through animals to take care of the sin of all of humanity. The other problem was that even though all these sacrifices were taking place, human beings were transgressing and sinning and being disobedient and going after the cravings of their heart. And the sacrifices became meaningless. But all of it was designed to remind them of their sinfulness and point them to a day when a rescuer would come, when someone would step into that space, when someone would pay the penalty, would take the punishment for that sin once and for all. And so this story takes the craziest twist, something that would have been so surprising to humanity because humanity is all about power structures and authority and who's going to come and overthrow the roman empire we've fast forwarded a couple of thousand years now <coughs> excuse me and then and who's going to come and take back power but you know who shows up a king in the form of a servant a king who's willing to suffer one who is gentle and lowly doesn't seem like that could be God's own son. But God leaves the majesty, or Jesus leaves the majesty and the splendor of heaven. And he's born of a virgin, walks 33 years on this earth, lives the life we could never live. He's tempted at all points, like we, you and I are tempted, but never sins. And then he goes to the cross. And once and for all, For all time and for all of eternity, there's forgiveness, lasting forgiveness, for our sins. Cornelius Platinga, he says it this way, Christians have always measured sin in part by the suffering needed to atone for it. How big must sin be? How big of a challenge and big of a problem must it be that the very Son of God must come and give his life to deal with it. And what we discover is that at the cross, that the cross is God's invitation back to the garden. This is a time, this time, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to eat from the tree of life. The cross is the tree of life. And what God is doing at the cross, what Jesus is doing at the cross, is he's inviting humanity back to the garden, back to dependence, back to life in God, back to the fact that God is good. Everything that I need to thrive is found in him and found in him alone. And once and for all, God is wanting to redeem humanity, redeem you and I, so that we can get back to the garden. So, that our lived experience, as imperfect and as broken as it is in 21st century North America because of the sin that we experience, there's a dependence and there's a relationship and there's a redemption and there's a restoring that would take place because of the cross. The cross is God's invitation back to the garden, it's an invitation to life it's an invitation to dependence it's an invitation to see all those things that are broken in our world restored i was reading this this week that on the cross god demonstrates his love on the cross god reveals his justice on the cross god satisfies his wrath God displays his wisdom. God magnifies his glory. We're redeemed from slavery. We're forgiven of our guilt. We're cleansed of shame. We're declared righteous. We're ransomed from death. We're adopted into his family. Death is defeated. Satan is conquered. Demons are vanquished. Evil is eradicated. The world is reconciled. Creation is renewed. Heaven and earth come together at the cross. Because he's holy, because he loves you, because it's his glory that's at stake, God sends his son to redeem us. So what is it that takes place at the cross? Well, the first thing that takes place at the cross is this. Jesus bears our sin. We can't bear it. There has to be penalty. There has to be a payment. We're the guilty party. Jesus is the innocent one. And at the cross, the innocent becomes guilty so that the guilty can become innocent. And there's an exchange that takes place at the cross. Jesus bears our sin. Think about that for a second. Every time, even if you were just to think about today, this past week, every time you sinned, every time you had a thought said a word, every time you had an action that you committed against yourself or someone else, every time you sinned, that was put on Jesus on the cross. Every sin, past, present, even into the future, Jesus took the payment and the penalty for that sin. Not just for you, but there on the cross, every human being's sin was put on Jesus. Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy, how the story has been corrupted and twisted by the world in which we live. God is rich in mercy. God loves. God is good. And because he is, he's made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions it's by grace that you've been saved and the point is this on the cross jesus gave himself for the very worst version of you the cross is not a supplement it's an it's the antidote to our sin and so many of us, we, we come and we think because we don't fully recognize and fully understand just how good, just how glorious, just how holy, just how just, just how loving our God is, we're, we buy into a lie that somehow says, i got to clean myself up a little bit before I can come to God. And and what happens is in those quiet, private moments in our lives, we go, well, I'm going to try and fix this, and then I'll try and fix this. And and then, then, I'm going to come to God. Then, maybe, God will accept me. No, 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 no. While you were yet sinners, while we were at our very worst, God comes through Jesus to redeem us, to forgive us, to buy us back. And so the starting point is not you cleaning yourself up. The starting point is you recognizing your sin, recognizing how you vandalized creation and violated your relationship with God, and recognizing the goodness of God, the love of God that has opened up a way and an opportunity for you to step into relationship. God is so good. Second thing that happens at the cross is this. Jesus heals the wounds that sin has inflicted upon us. Yeah, Gareth, I get it. I, I get it. I understand the whole forgiveness piece. I'm a sinner, and God's forgiven me. I get it, kinda. Try to work that out. N- not just that. No, no, no. The wounds that sins inflicted upon you, the cross actually heals. Whether you've inflicted sin on yourself, maybe you've been, in, maybe someone else has inflicted sin upon you. And there are some in this room this morning that, man, that's been a devastating thing where someone else has sinned against you. Whether it's just been in the world in which we live, you need to hear this morning that the cross doesn't just forgive, but at the cross of Jesus Christ, there's healing for the wounds that sin creates in our world. It says this in Isaiah chapter 53. But he was pierced. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, shalom, the way it was meant to be. And then he says this, and with his wounds, we are healed. And there are some of you this morning, man, you're sitting in this room, and man, you walk with a limp because there's been some sin against you. Maybe even some sin that you've kind of carried out in your own body, in your own life, in your own world. And Jesus, you need to hear this this morning. Jesus forgives, but Jesus doesn't just forgive. Jesus wants to heal the wounds that sin has inflicted upon you. He's the bomb of Gilead. He's the one that comes to bind up the brokenhearted. He's the one that comes to bring comfort, and to bring healing. He's risen with healing in his wings for you. For those areas that are broken, those areas that have been wounded, those areas that, where pain has been inflicted. And he's simply saying, bring it to me. Bring it to the cross. Remember, the cross is an invitation back to the garden, back to dependence, back to wholeness, back to love, back to fellowship, back to the way it's meant to be. It's not meant to be this way. By his wounds, you're healed. He wants to heal, not just forgive. But the third thing that happens at the cross is this. Jesus took back the authority that we abdicated when, uh, so that we don't have to live under the rule or the power of sin. Remember, we are stewards of God's creation. When we sin against God, we gave up. We abdicated our authority. Remember, God says, I want you to take dominion. I want you to oversee. I want you to care for creation. And in that moment, when we, when we stepped back from God and said, nope, we're going to do it ourselves, we abdicated that authority that God had given us as his created beings, as those created in his image, and we gave it over to a terrible ruler. Just look around the world and what he's done to the world, to God's creation because of sin and because of evil but at the cross Jesus doesn't just forgive you of your sin Jesus doesn't just heal your wounds Jesus actually takes back the authority that we abdicated the bible puts it this way the same power that raised Christ from the dead abides in you abides in me he says this in Matthew 28:18 all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth And so, what the enemy took, what the enemy stole, what we gave up, God says, I'm not giving my glory to another. And on the cross, God takes back through Jesus all authority, which means you don't have to live under the power or the rule of sin. You have a choice. And in those moments when you're tempted, When those moments when you're confronted with sin, should I, should I not, there's a prayer, there's a power, there's a relationship, the Holy Spirit in you, helping you overcome the temptation to give into sin. Why? Because I live for his glory. Because of his great love for me. Because he's called me to be a creative minority, created in his image, living out his story the way Jesus showed us, so that he can be glorified, so that the world around us can see the goodness of God. This is the power of the cross. This is what God has called us to. This is what God has given us in Jesus Christ. How do you know it's true? How do you know God accepted it? Because God's Jesus is not in the grave. On the third day, he rose again. God accepted the payment for our sin. Even death and hell could not keep Jesus. He overcame death and hell and sin and power. This is the story that you and I are invited into. So how do we respond? What life do we live? What is it that God's calling us to? Three simple things. God calls us to repent. Well, what's repentance? Well, repentance is simply this. I'm going this way, cravings, desires, disobedient, doing whatever I want. Repentance is a 180-degree turn. Nope. I love you, Jesus. I'm following you, Jesus. I'm living for your glory, God. Christianity is a lifestyle of Repentance. But the second thing is this, God's inviting us to surrender. Even Jesus, agonizing in the garden, Lord, if you could take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. That ought to be that our prayer, first prayer in the morning, Lord, I'm surrendering, not my will, your will be done. In my life, here on earth, as it is in heaven. But the last thing is this, Repentance, surrender, joyful obedience. Back to the garden. Back to delight. Back to dependence. Back to, I believe, God, your way is better than my way. Your way is the way to life. Your way is the way that allows me to thrive and succeed and, and be all that you've called me to be, but allow us to be all that we've, called, we've been called to So just as we close, we're going to participate in taking communion together. But before we do, I want to give us an opportunity just to respond on our hearts. There's some of us this morning that, man, maybe for the first time, you've been kind of walking this way, transgressions and sin and disobedience, craving after my own desires, and man, it's not working out too well. You bump into walls, but this morning... Just like God came to Adam and Eve in the garden, pursuing them, covering them, chasing after them, not to beat them up, but to love them and to bring them back to the way life was supposed to be, Jesus is here this morning because of the cross inviting you into relationship with Him. And so I'd love us just to close our eyes just for a moment, just to take a moment, just to pause. just to reflect, just to say, God, that's the life I want. I don't want a life of sin. I don't want a life that's outside of the garden. I don't want a life that, Lord, I've done that life. That life's not ended up too well. That life's caused me all kinds of pain and discouragement and heartache. Lord, I want life in the garden. I want life from the tree of life, from the cross of Christ. That's what I want. Well, our part in that is simply, Lord, I repent of my sin. I believe that you've forgiven me by your work on the cross. And that because of what you have done, and because of my accepting that work and that penalty and payment for my sin, that I could have new life, I could become a new creation. And so if that's you this morning, would you have the courage... Would you so recognize the goodness and the love of God that's pursued you through Jesus to simply slip your hand up and to say, I, wanna, I want that relationship with Jesus this morning. I want to be forgiven for my sin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So Lord, this morning, you see us, you see our hearts. And Lord Jesus, we are simply here this morning recognizing our own sin, recognizing, Lord Jesus, our desperate need of redemption, but in the midst of all of that, recognizing your holiness and your goodness and your love that would pursue us, that didn't destroy us, when we, that's what we deserved, but came after us and would forgive us for our sins. So Lord, right now, Lord, we just acknowledge our sinfulness, we acknowledge our, the forgiveness that we have in you, and we receive the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and just share communion, start sharing communion with us because as we close today, I want to take a moment. Jesus, at the, before he went to the cross, he, he gathered his disciples and he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning as we partake of communion, we're gonna do it together in a moment after we sing this song. But what I want us to do is I want us to remember that Jesus bore our sin, that Jesus heals the wounds that sin inflicts upon us, but Jesus also has given us the power to overcome because of his Holy Spirit. Let's sing this song together and then we'll take communion together.